You're listening to Smart Talk. I'm Katie Meyer in for a vacationing Scott Lamar. And to talk about our revenue picture, our latest numbers on that, and you know what we can expect in the next couple of months as the legislature tries to make its budget, we have in here to talk with us Mark Steer, director of the Pennsylvania Budget and Policy Center, Nathan Benefield, vice president and COO of the Commonwealth Foundation, and Sheila Weinberg, who is the founder and CEO of Truth and Accounting, which is a national nonprofit uh, that grades states' health. She joins us over the phone. So we have, uh, you know... A you know, different uh, sides of the aisles represented today um, to talk about the budget. But I just want to start off with, um, you know, a very uh, broad, you know, let's set the scene with Pennsylvania's current fiscal situation. So the Independent Fiscal Office just released a report um, that basically says Pennsylvania's revenue shortfall for this fiscal year has increased. It's been revised upwards several times um, over the last year. And now it's projected to be about a billion dollars below what we had expected for, again, this fiscal year. And that's, we should note, on top of a structural deficit um, of about $3 billion. So, um, Mark and Nathan, you guys come, again, as I said, from different sides of the aisle on this, but I do want to ask you both, um, you know, how severe is the shortfall? What kind of situation does this put our legislature in, Nathan? Well, I'll start with this. And, and to me, the biggest takeaway from the IFO's analysis of why we have a shortfall is it's the economy, stupid. Uh, that there are projections that were missed because of, of policy, you know, assuming policies that didn't didn't turn out that way. But for the most part, the reason our revenues are short of estimates is the economy has not been growing. And we have a, you know, both in Pennsylvania and nationally, but, but certainly the Pennsylvania growth uh, has been far short of what was projected. And lawmakers really need to take a look at that, because that is the, the biggest issue um, that only affects the state budget, but certainly employment and, and jobs in, in Pennsylvania. And that... Um, oftentimes we get in this kind of budget discussion of how do we fill the shortfall, how do we come up um, and, and bounce budget this year, because this year we are going to end with a real deficit, which means we're spending about a billion dollars more than revenues, and at the end of the year, we have to pay off a billion dollars in, in bills. Um, but the challenge, I think, for lawmakers is not only just coming up with a way to pay that money, but also thinking about how to fix the economy, because unless we grow the economy, um, we're going to be in the same boat again next year and and in the years to follow. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into those fixes a little bit later in the program. Um, but yeah, So, Mark, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, it looks like there's been a slight slowdown uh, in the Pennsylvania economy compared to projections. But there's expectations of that recovery next year. The other interesting thing is that wage growth has been pretty good, but tax revenue has been falling behind that. And we think that's partly the result of an expectation of a federal tax cut shifting when people are taking uh, capital gains. Um having some effect on our economic growth. I think the big message here, though, is that the changes in the revenues uh, expected is a blip compared to the deeper structural deficit problems we have in this, in this state. And those problems are mainly a problem of not raising enough revenues to carry on the government that people in Pennsylvania want. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, Sheila, if you can hear me, I want to get you in here as well, because you come at this from, you know, sort of a broader standpoint, um, you know, from the national standpoint. So I guess first off, um, you guys recently gave Pennsylvania a, uh, I think this was in March you did this, so this is before the IFO's report, but you gave Pennsylvania a D for its fiscal health. Um, so I guess what calculus plays into that? Well, we take and do an overall financial um, look at this whole state's financial condition. All of its assets, uh, we take off the capital assets because you shouldn't spend those to uh, pay your bills. Um, And we also take off the related debt to come down to 
a money needed to pay bills, and we calculate that the state is in the hole by $72 um, billion, which is $16,800 per taxpayer. Um, I find it, uh, I don't know, I hate to say the word humorous, but when you know, you're saying that there's a $1 billion deficit, but then there's this, quote, structural deficit that is $3 billion, um, it sounds like they're doing in-run accounting where they're keeping two sets of books out there. Right. And we should say that when you say we have a $70 billion structural deficit, you're factoring in our pension debt, our unfunded pension liability as well, right? That's the big bill. Yeah, and you have to factor factor that in. That is is cost that should have been included in prior budgets and included in the current budget, Um, but the legislatures have... have decided to pass that on to future taxpayers. You have to kind of look at it as, okay, I'm not going to include the 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 shoes and the groceries I'm putting on my credit card um, because I'm not paying my credit card bill right now. But those are costs that you did incur that are going to have to be paid, and it's even worse than a credit card because a credit card I have to pay off. Um, this pension quote credit card future taxpayers are going to have to pay off and not receive any government services or benefits for those taxes, related taxes. Sure. And so we just for context, so we do have an unfunded pension liability in the state, and we can talk about that at great length, um, perhaps at a different time. But uh, because, again, various projections put it at different places, but we can say it's around $70 billion of, again, that unfunded liability. But that's generally not factored into, you're right, Sheila, the um, budget projections that the state gives, um, so rather the deficit projections. But I do want to ask you, just kind of, you know, big picture, back out, you know, how does Pennsylvania stack up with, you know, other states that you guys look at? You know, where are we in context? Well, as you said, we, we gave the state a, a D, and um, I'm just pulling up your – I'm looking at our statedatalab.org, and it has all the states. Um, and last year we, we put uh, Pennsylvania, I think, at 10th worst state um, in the country. Okay. And so you mentioned some of the factors that go into that. Um, but, you know, like what maybe would be the factors that would make a state better? Uh, well, we do have 10 states that are in fine financial shape. Um, last year we gave Utah um, the Transparency Award. Um, and I did because they are actually, you know, show a taxpayer surplus. They're ahead of the game. They have been truly balancing their budgets. And I did ask their budget director, I said, what are you guys doing differently than other states are doing? And they're like, well, when we balance our budget, we really balance our budget. Uh, We don't play accounting and budgeting games to pretend the budget's balanced. We actually, you know, the revenue we get, uh, we don't record things like Illinois records loan proceeds as revenue. Um, Our pension costs, which, you know, as you say, you know, don't worry about those in the current budget discussion. Well, yeah, those are current compensation costs. And states like Utah put those true costs into the budget calculations instead of pushing those off onto future taxpayers. Okay. And now I want to get you to um, Mark and Nathan back in. You know, we do talk a lot about accurate budgeting. Um, you know, over the past several years, there have been revenues in the state. One of the ones that comes out to me um, is gambling. They uh, There was a $100 million in this current budget that was supposed to go, you know, new gambling revenue was supposed to come in. It never did. The law was never passed to allocate that. And so now we are down $100 million just from gaming. So, you know, with that sort of stuff in mind... Um, um, the legislature does not always predict accurately how much money it's going to get, uh, Nathan. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think it's 
and, and we've said with this past budget that it was never really a balanced budget. Um, it was predicated on, of course, as you mentioned, passing gambling legislation that would somehow come up with um, $100 million and just basically saying, yeah, we're going to count that promise that we will pass legislation in the future as, as revenue. Uh, it also includes borrowing money. Um, they're taking $200 million from another fund um, and borrowing it and, and promising to pay that back. Um, to me, that's um, I don't know how you balance a budget when you're we're borrowing money. Uh, so I think that over the years, and this is not new, it's, it's a bipartisan um, effort to sometimes disguise um, budgets and come up with um, phony revenue numbers. Um, and this is why, this is frankly, why we created the independent fiscal office to have a little more um, honest discussion of, of where the revenues are, where the spending are, and, and what um, what the forecasts are for, for the state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Mark, do you have a different take on that? No. Uh, last July, I wrote a blog post that said the budget really wasn't balanced, that we had a $1.3 billion deficit. We closed half of it with recurring revenues, mostly cigarette taxes and tobacco taxes, which are a good thing to tax, but over time they bring in less money. The other half of the $1.3 billion deficit was with balanced with one-shot revenues and gimmicks, a tax amnesty, which is going to cost us more money in the future, borrowing from other funds, overestimating revenues, and relying on selling licenses for gaming and liquor, which are, again, one-time revenues. We have not addressed the long-term problem that we don't bring enough revenue. And the the two reasons we don't bring enough revenue is that we've cut corporate taxes, and we have an upside-down tax system that taxes people at the bottom at very high rates and people at the top at very low rates. The result is we're not taxing the people whose whose income is increasing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, there is some uh, consensus <laughs> between the two of you on, you know, what the problems are, but how to fix them, I think, is, you know, where we get into um, points of contention. So, you know, you mentioned we need additional revenue in the state. That's been obviously the position of uh, legislative Democrats. They have had little luck with that. Governor Tom Wolf has, you know, supported broad-based tax increases his last two budgets. He didn't try that again this year. Um, Nathan, I mean, you've supported, you know, spending cuts, right? Well, not just spending cuts, but reforming the growth of spending. Sure. It is it is not simply, you know, people say cuts, but it's sometimes people call growing spending slower than it has been growing a cut. Um, we would not. We think that is uh, the way we need to have structural reforms. Uh, Pennsylvania is already a, a high-tax state. Uh, we ranked 15th highest in, in our state and local tax burden among the uh, states. Uh, and that is why we've had slow economic growth. We've lagged the nation in, in job growth, in population growth, and in income growth. And our tax burden is part of the reason. So we think the solution to bring the budget in balance um, and to deal with the, the structural issues is to adopt structural spending reforms. Um, that includes the, p- the pension system. Uh, it includes welfare reforms. Um, and you simply look at the, for instance, the IFO numbers on the forecast. Um, they project welfare growth and human services growth going up by 8% next year and, and 5% per year after that, when our state economy is growing by 3.5%. Even Mark would agree that's unsustainable rates of growth. Um, the reality is, is trying to bring spending in line with the growth of our economy. Um, and lastly, talking about corporate welfare, and I think this is an area Mark and I can agree on, that we spend a, a great deal of money in, in tax incentives and in subsidies for specific corporations uh, that hinder our overall tax burden and, and haven't really led to economic growth in our state. It is um, picking and choosing winners and losers and rewarding those who have the best lobbyists, not the best businesses. Mm-hmm. Mark, anything you want to add? Sure. Uh, First of all, let's clear something up. Spending is not going up in the state. As a percentage of state gross domestic product, it averaged 4.71% between 94 and 2011. It dropped during the corporate years to 4.38%. In the Wolf years, it's dropped again to 4.33%. The governor's proposed budget reduces it again to 4.3%. 
0.32%. As a percent of economic activity, the state is growing slow, smaller. As a percent of employment, the state is growing slow, smaller. We are doing less than we've done before. Um, and in terms of tax revenues, Nathan keeps using that number, we're 15th in the state. That includes what we pay to the federal government. If we just include... It, it doesn't. Yes, it does. If you just include state revenues as a, as a per capita... Ba- uh, I'm sorry, as a per GDP basis, per capita, we are 34th out of 50. We are not a high spending state. We are not a high tax state. We have a huge investment deficit. We don't spend enough for K-12 education, where we have the most unequal schools in the country. We are fourth from the bottom in spending on higher education. We're cutting spending in the Department of Environment Protection by 30% since 2008, while we've had this explosion of fracking wells. We have a budget deficit. We also have an investment deficit. And the solution is to raise revenues, not on working people, not on the middle class, but on corporations and people at the top. Right, Sheila, I do want to get back uh, to you just for a moment. Uh, we got about a minute left before we go to a break. But, um, you know, you've looked at other states. You know, are there any um, any other states we can use as a barometer for maybe an ideal course of action to, uh, you know, get out of the current fiscal situation? Well, I think your discussion, you know, is a good one. Um, it, you know, it talks about how um, states are, you know, you either need to bring more money in, uh, which would be, you know, one side of your discussion, or uh, take less money out. Um, I think, you know, one thing to look at, again, is your pensions, which, you know, we have analyzed them since 2009, and they have, the unfunded liability has quadrupled since then. Um, So, you know, beyond this, you know, deficit that's going on, um, horrible things are going on with the, the pensions um, that that uh, need to be um, you know wrangled in. Um, and the other thing is you know which we're not talking about yet is you have 22 billion dollars of unfunded retiree health care benefits, um, which are also need you know need to be need to be looked at. All right. Well, on that note, um, we are going to take some calls. Uh, so, you know, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, if you have anything uh, you want to ask any of our panelists. Uh, or you can shoot us an email at smarttalk at witf.org. Um, again, this is Katie Meyer. You're listening to Smart Talk, and we'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Smart Talk. This is Katie Meyer. Again, we're talking with Mark Steer, Director of the Pennsylvania Budget and Policy Center, Nathan Benefield, Vice President and COO of the Commonwealth Foundation, and Sheila Weinberg, Founder and CEO of Truth and Accounting, a national nonprofit. Now, for the three of you, um, you know, we've talked about uh, different uh, structural issues with our budgeting processes, but we have also talked about, you know, just like economic trends that have really impacted the way that uh, our economy has gone. You know, in the latest IFO report, it hasn't been a good, what, last several months, good year overall, nationally for states. So, I mean, can you talk about that? What kind of impact has that, just those larger forces had on our state? Well, well certainly the national economy dominates um, what is happening at, at the states and, and um, that every state uh, responds to what, what's happening at the national level and at the national level has shown slow GDP growth. Um, historically, Pennsylvania has, has lagged uh, the nation in economic growth. It has been a slow growth state almost uh, since the 1970s. Um, And that is because of our high tax burden uh, and because of our high spending burden. And I have to address something Mark said, which is um, misleading, that he talks about spending has declined as a percentage of our economy. Well, Mark's only including a small part of the state budget. He's only talking about the general fund. Um, And 
why that's inaccurate is because oftentimes lawmakers take things off the general fund and move it aside. A few years ago, they took mass transit funding and created a special fund for that. They didn't cut funding. They didn't cut your taxes that pay for it. They just simply created a new checking account. By Mark's analysis, they cut spending. Um, but the reality is, if you look at our total operating budget, which is more than $80 billion that we spend out of the, out of the state, um, that's about 12% of our GDP. And that's the highest point it's been other than the two years where we got stimulus funding to aid uh, our state budget. All right. Mark, anything you want to... Yeah, but that, that whole big budget includes a lot of federal funding, and, and that's I, I think that's different from the state budget, and I think it should be different from state revenue-funded budget, and I think it should be set aside. All right. And I do want to redirect back to uh, something that we got from the IFL report. Mark, you did mention this earlier, that one of the you know reasons behind this slow tax collection um, this last cycle was uh, like sort of creative budgeting on the parts of you know businesses and others. Basically, people were anticipating a tax break, potentially. This is, again, a possible cause, but it was one that the IFO put out there. People were anticipating a tax break, and so they pushed revenues into another fiscal year to file? Is that essentially what happened? That's one of the hypotheses. It's really hard to know. We'll have a better idea next year. Right. Um, right. Nathan, anything? Could you say anything on that? Like, what? what's the reasoning behind that? Well, I, I think, impact? I mean, yeah, that people don't like to pay taxes. Um, I think that's that's across the board true. Um, and um, for those that, that can, and I think the IFO has thought that one of the hypotheses might be that um, those who are, especially business owners, um, deferred their income uh, in different ways to next year. And and that is true. I think businesses uh, have, the, have the ability to do that in a better way than, than typical households do. Uh, and that is why we advocate for, for lower and flatter and simpler tax tax rates and tax structure. Mm-hmm. And speaking of taxes, we do have a caller on. Uh, we got Dave in Lewisburg who has a question about uh, Marcellus Shale. Dave? I was just wondering why we don't tax gas extraction. We're the only state that doesn't. We have a small impact fee, which goes away over time. It's an opportunity to get revenue. The businesses aren't going to go anywhere because we've got the biggest supply of gas in the world. Why don't we tax the gas extraction like every other state that does? So thanks, Dave. Uh, appreciate your question. Dave's question is one that's been brought up in the legislature many, many times over uh even the last several years. Um, and this is something that Governor Tom Wolf has put into his budget. He said we should have, you know, an extraction tax on, or a severance tax, rather, on Marcellus Shale. Um, you know, the Republican majorities in the House and Senate have been pretty, pretty against that. But uh, either of you, you know, Mark, you want to? Uh, absolutely. We, they should be paying it. The, if the, we could bring bringing in $300 million maybe a year this year, as gas prices recover, we could be bringing $700 million, a billion. And it, I think it's shameful that we're not taxing it. They're not paying other state taxes. Uh, most we're, we're going to put out a report later this week or early next week that shows that most of the drilling companies are limited partnerships. They're paying at the 3.07% rate, not at the corporate tax rate. If they're paying at all, many of them are arranging their operations so they, they're not showing profits here uh, to pay here. Um, they don't pay... Uh, property taxes on the value of the mineral deposits in the state as they do in other states. We let them escape from most forms of taxation, and it's just shameful. Uh, They should be paying their fair share of taxes. And and the caller's right. Uh, They're not going to go anywhere. 
Um, mm-hmm. As the gas prices recover, as $12 billion of new uh, pipeline comes in, which makes that gas available to people throughout the market market in the Northeast and beyond, there's going to be tremendous demand on that gas. This, the state and its taxpayers are going to be getting some of the benefits. And uh, Nathan, so, I yeah. mean, this is a, a you know a potential source of new revenue, although, I mean, I will huh. say that uh, a severance tax is definitely tied to the price of gas, which has been inconsistent. So well, let can... me start off with the, the claim that they're not going to go anywhere because they have gone places. They have been, there have been mass layoffs in the drilling industry. They are going to other places. Um, they are pulling out of Pennsylvania. Um, now, that's largely because of gas prices, not because of, of policy, sure. um, but simply charging more. Um, there, there is a response to that. And um, I, I would also add that we, are, we do have an impact fee. Which is in function, it is a tax. The way it's distribu- distributed um, functions like a tax. It's um, the Auditor General came out with a report of how it was misused. Um, were costs that were, had nothing to do with with drilling. Um, the IFO estimates that at current gas prices, the impact fee is an effective five percent tax rate. Um, gas drillers do pay every tax. Other common to other businesses. I know Mark is saying that though they're LLPs, but that is something his organization put out before, it was erroneous because if you are an LLP owned by a corporation, you pay the corporate income tax rate. Uh, And the comparison to other states needs to be put, I think, in context of our overall tax burden. Yes, other states have a severance tax. Texas, Alaska, Wyoming, those states also have no income tax. They have no corporate non-income tax. If Mark wants to be like those states, absolutely. We would be totally on board with imposing a severance tax and eliminating our, our state income tax. That would be a great trade-off for, for Pennsylvania and great for our economy. Uh, worth noting that when the impact fee was passed under Governor Corbett, he didn't call it a tax because he was a no-tax governor. Um, <laughs> but I think the point stands that it is a source of revenue for the state um, to any extent. Um, anything you want to add before we get no, off the I, subject I, gas? I, I, I agree with Nathan. It is a tax, but it's a small tax. It's not 5%. It's more like 1.5%. Uh, and the severance tax we're calling for would give people a credit for that impact tax. We're not. We don't want to add a second tax to it. We just want to tax the natural gas drillers at the same rate they're taxed elsewhere in the in the in the country. Many of those states that do tax them have income taxes, have corporate taxes as well, and they also have property taxes on the value of mineral deposits, which we don't do not have. All right. And now, uh, Sheila, still on the line, um, before we uh, end our half hour with you, and I thank you for calling in, I just want to say, like, again, sort of big picture for Pennsylvania. Um, You know, what uh, (laughs) I I suppose we've sort of covered, um, you know, what we need to do. We either need to raise revenues or we need to, um, you know, cut spending. But, you know, what are the I suppose what risks does Pennsylvania run by not dealing with these structural deficits? You know, we use the phrase kick the can down the road a lot. And we have done that in past budgets where, again, as we've said here, they haven't been fully balanced. What are the risks involved? Um, I'll give you Illinois as an example. Sure, Our that's a good one. State. Um, you know, we're, we're a little bit further behind than you are. And, you know, I, I met a state, former uh, state, professor, state university professor last night um, she went on. She retired. Went on to the state um, health care plan. Um, her doctors in 2016, early 2016, her doctors have not been paid um, for any medical costs that she has incurred since then. Um, doctors are not getting paid. Schools are not getting paid. Um, our roads are the worst in the country. Um, and you know, so Pennsylvania is just heading down that road. 
I've, you know, some budgeting gimmicks and accounting and budgeting gimmicks have to be fixed because your, you know, unfunded debt has gone, you know, doubled um, since 2009. So obviously you're not really balancing your budget and you need to figure out exactly what's going on and fix the, the accounting gimmicks to re- truly balance your budget. All right. Well, Sheila, and I believe Sheila um, has to go after this, but I re- really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thank you for that uh, insight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, all right. And so now, you know, getting into, um, I suppose, our next topic of conversation, because one of the things we talk about when we talk about Pennsylvania's economy is, uh, you know, our where our costs lie. Um, for instance, our human services costs have gone up um, immensely over the last what decade or so. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons for that is because our population's getting older. And now these are costs that we can talk a lot about, you know, creative budgeting. But this is something that doesn't really go away um, with a law change necessarily. So, I mean, do you guys have um, a take on that, how that impacts our economy? Well, I mean, obviously that's a... a huge challenge facing Pennsylvania. And you talk about an aging population. And it's not just that all of us is getting older every year, which is obviously uh, true. Um, but uh, our state is, um, the number of senior citizens is, is growing. And the number of, of younger people and working people um, isn't growing. I think we'll talk about this maybe a little later, about some of the migration patterns of losing people. Um, that is done because, as you mentioned, um, Seniors tend to take more in terms of healthcare costs, human services costs, um, while aren't paying as money, much in taxes. Uh, and it is those younger and working people uh, who are leaving the state. Um, so we have declining tax revenues or slow growth in tax revenues uh, because of those population trends uh, and higher costs. Um, and that is a, a challenge to fix because, um, simply put, we we need to be more attractive state for, for job creators and for, for new jobs and for, for younger people. Mm-hmm. And you know, is there anything that can be done on the legislative side that would you know help that situation at all? Or is it just sort of... <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, absolutely policy is going to help drive that, that sure. making a, a more friendly business climate um, with with a lower tax burden. Uh, I know Mark is going to disagree with me on that, but um, a lower tax burden that is more attractive to uh, to families and to to companies to, to create jobs. Um, a regulatory environment that is more attractive to, to job creators, um, and uh, improving simply the quality of life and, and education in the state that makes it a more attractive state uh, for businesses and for young families. All right, Mark. Uh, any you know different take uh, on that? A c- couple of things. First of all, we do have a problem. We have an aging state, um, and Healthcare costs go up now. The question, and as do long-term care costs go up. The question is, are we going to balance our budgets on the backs of grandma and grandpa? I don't think we should. But Nathan's organization supported a federal health care bill that's going to massively cut um, Medicaid funding from the federal government going to Pennsylvania. It's going to increase our our budget deficit to maintain the same level of services by two to three billion dollars a year. It's going to lead to higher insurance premiums for people who are getting older in the fifty-five to sixty-five. Uh, per- person age range, um, that's going to make the problems we have much worse. And it's hard to understand how you can be talking about our problems in, in Pennsylvania when you just supported a, a law that would in- increase them for, for older people. In terms of economic growth, uh, you know, at the end, Nathan said education's important to it. And, you know, we absolutely agree. Um, and, and you know what? If you look at where population trends are going in the state, uh, we're mostly losing population in, in, in rural areas. Uh, Philadelphia is starting to pick up. Pittsburgh hasn't quite turned a corner, but everyone expects it to turn the corner very soon. Uh, Pittsburgh is primed for economic growth. Uh, 
What's millennials are coming to both of those cities? Why? Well, because they're high-tech areas, they're high-education areas, they have great uh, universities, UPenn, Pitt, Carnegie Mellon, Temple. Um, that's what's bringing people. And, and what we're seeing is disinvestment in public goods in much for the rest of the state. Uh, we're f- putting much less money into higher education, into the PASHI system, which mostly serves rural areas of the state. Uh, we're underfunding uh, K-12 education in rural areas of the state. Um, that's critical to economic growth. And the surprising thing is our General Assembly is dominated by legislators who come from rural areas, and they've been undermining the things that would make those areas grow. Um, So actually, that's uh, a good point to pivot on because we do have an email in um, from Scouter Lake. That's a great name. Um, so he says, why is reducing the size of the legislature not part of this discussion? It has been, I think, you know, part of the discussion. Pennsylvania has one of the largest full-time legislatures. Is it the largest full-time legislature in the country? Largest full-time, yes. Yes, largest Maybe. full-time. Um, so we've got a lot of lawmakers. Um, now, there has been discussion about reducing the size of the legislature, you know, A, so they cost less, and B, so there's, you know, yeah, less of an unwieldy body to you know turn to make these laws happen. Um, do you guys have a take on that? Yeah, well, there is. I mean, there is legislation to do that that was passed sure. last session and is, um, I guess, on on track. For this legislation it would be a constitutional amendment, so they have right. to pass it twice and put it on the ballot for for people to vote on it to amend the constitution. Um, that has not been something that Commonwealthation has been advocating for um, or against. But but generally speaking, the idea of like oh fewer lawmakers that will save money. It may or may not. The, the largest costs within the legislature itself um, are not legislators or their, their salary, but the number of staff and the uh, additional expenses, the printing costs, uh, everything that goes into that um, may or may not save money within the legislature. And the bigger question is the policies that le- the legislature enacts. That um, when we talk about having an expensive legislature, it's a small part of the state budget, and, and the policies that may or may not come out of a smaller legislature is, is far more important for our consideration of, of that. Mm-hmm. Mark. I agree with Nathan about that. I think the far bigger problem is the gerrymandering of the legislature, the fact that uh, legislative district lines are drawn such that Democrats only have to look over their left shoulder in primaries and don't worry about a general election, and Republicans only have to worry about looking over their right shoulder right. Uh, in a primary. And, and that means that, that we have a legislature that's increasingly divided, and it's hard to, to find some consensus on the, on some of the sensible things that I think most people agree on, like Nathan and I just agreed about education. And we also would agree about cutting some spending for uh, corporate welfare that doesn't make sense either. Sure. And actually, I'm glad you brought up gerrymandering because we do have a caller on the line. Jim from Enola um, wanted to know about gerrymandering. Uh, Jim? Hi. Uh, hi, Katie. Hi. Uh, yeah, that, I'm, I'm glad to hear what uh, what your uh, one guest just said about gerrymandering. I, I, it seems to me that as a, as a member of the public that uh, it's hard to get your arms around what we can do. And I believe there is one thing we can do, and that is redistricting reform. If we had a legislature that had member people from the great middle of of our uh, political spectrum rather than what we have now, I think we can get some things done. What, what we have right now, because of gerrymandering, is we have extreme right public politicians and extreme left politicians. And when you do that, why in the world would you expect them to ever uh, get together and agree on anything? Uh, what we need, the number one thing we need, is redistricting reform. 
By the way, today at 11 o'clock in the Capitol in Harrisburg, there's going to be a rally for redistricting reform. I encourage everyone who is interested in this topic to come to the Capitol and tell our legislators how important this is. Thanks. All right, Jim, thank you, and thank you for the advertisement of that rally today. Um, and I believe that's a rally from Fair Districts Pennsylvania, which is an organization that has been advocating for uh, you know, a constitutional amendment that would create a third-party uh, panel that helps um, redistrict every 10 years. We do we get reapportioned, so we you know our congressional seats change, and we also redistrict, which means we change our district boundaries. That's always been up to the legislature. These guys want to... Uh, Put in a, a partisan, a nonpartisan commission. Um, you know, do you guys? I mean, is there some bipartisan agreement on this? Isn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I disagree with some of the claims of what would happen if we did redistricting reform. That um, you know, just simply where people live affects the makeup of the legislature. And you know, there's been analysis that the divide has grown even between redistricting of of you know. Districts becoming yeah. uncompetitive. But largely, it's a good government reform, and having lawmakers draw their own districts uh, is where you see gerrymandering, largely to protect incumbents or you know, draw a seat that we're going to draw this around where the lawmaker's house is um, rather than, than simply um, very, very simple, simple lines. Um, that's a good government reform that yeah, we, we support. All right. And on that note, I think we're going to go to another break. Uh, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about Pennsylvania's demographic changes. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We've got Mark Steer, director of the Pennsylvania Budget and Policy Center, and Nathan Benefield, vice president and COO of the Commonwealth Foundation. Uh, and I'm Katie Meyer, in for Scott Lamar. And we're going to talk about now uh, a trend that's been going on. We mentioned this a little bit before, but we've had some demographic shifts in our population, you know, over the last many years. But uh, one of the interesting things, the IFO, on top of their fiscal report that they just put out, they also did a report saying that millennials, young people generally thought to be between the ages of like 18 to 20 and 35-ish, are leaving the state. We had a net loss of millennials in the last year um, that it was tracked by uh, population data, which was 2015. And, you know, that kind of does go in line with our what we've known, that our population is getting older. But uh, net loss of young people in the state as a whole. Um, Mark, you know, what does that do for, I guess, the state at large? I, I think it is a real problem. Uh, but again, I want to say it's, it's, it's not a uniform problem. Sure. Uh, and that's one of the striking things. Uh, Rural areas are getting much older, much faster than our cities. Uh, our biggest cities, Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh, seem to be attracting millennials. There's a big millennial pol political movement in Philadelphia right now that's very attractive in, in the way it's bringing fresh ideas to our politics. Uh, we need young people um, who are highly educated, who are uh, able to... to take hold of this 21st century economy and, and find their way in it and innovate and in both the public and the private sector. And the way to do that is to to create the conditions that make it attractive for them to live in. And one of the key conditions is creating more people like them, more younger people with uh, good educations who demand the kind of work and the kind of communities that are, that are attractive millennials. Um, the fact that we underinvest in education and in higher education in this state, that we're fourth from the bottom in higher education, that we are 41st in the percentage of people with uh, more than high school education, that's really frightening to me. I think our future lies in, in um, 
attracting more younger people by creating these conditions, and education is key to that. Mm -hmm. And just to put some numbers on this, so the IFO's report said, first off, that millennials as a generation, as a demographic group, tend to be higher educated. Um, So in the last recorded year, and we're talking about college-educated millennials with these numbers, last recorded year, 2015, Pennsylvania gained about 34,000 college-educated millennials, so those came in, but it lost more than 47,000. That's a net outflow, about 13,000 people. So, you know, there are some reasons for this. Uh, There are some uh, different, um, you know, driving factors, as Mark mentioned, that they put behind this. One of them as well is that we have the second highest student debt in the country. Uh, The IFO did note that, uh, you know, that's a driver. People go home after college. They leave the state. They go back to their parents. So, I mean, you know, Nathan, you're not. I mean, what do you say? What does that do? Well, I think, you know, that it, it has been clear, I think, Pennsylvania has good universities, has been attracting people to come to college. Um, it's the question of the jobs after college. And uh, you mentioned the 13,000 college-educated millennials that we lost uh, in, in 2015. Um, that's, that's 36 people leaving every day that we're losing. Uh, and I hear, you know, hear parents talking all the time about the, the brain drain and their kids going out of state to, to find better opportunities. Um, this puts kind of real numbers to the, the anecdotes <clears throat> that, that we hear um, from from people that uh, we are seeing young people move, and we're seeing that overall as well. Pennsylvania has been a net out migration state um, for for years. Whether you look at the census data or um, IRS data, or even United Van Lines does their study of where people are moving in into out of, um, we are a state that has been losing people to other states uh, in the net in in migration, um, and that is largely because of economic opportunity uh, and and jobs. And that is why when we talk about, you know, in the context of the state budget and all the policies that go into that, that lawmakers really need to focus primarily on what can we can do to create more jobs in Pennsylvania and make Pennsylvania a more attractive state uh, for people to move to. Mm-hmm. Job creation. Um, Mark, you mentioned that there are, I mean, net cities, Philadelphia, but Pittsburgh as well, have seen not net outflows, net inflows of millennials. Mm-hmm. So that basically what that means is that, you know, while cities are doing fine, they're getting more young people. The other areas of the state, which is most of the state, mm-hmm. is not. They're losing young people. So, I mean, you mentioned that things have to attract them. You know, is it just jobs? Is it something else, you think? I think it's a lot of it is other people like them. Uh, and, you know, we have a lot of really wonderful small cities in the state, Erie, York, Lancaster, um, uh, uh, Reading. Um, we need to be encouraging um, more education, more higher education, more community colleges in all those areas to to, to help revitalize them. And I think that would, that would make a huge difference. I want to say one other thing about this whole millennial... Um, outflow. One reason for it, and it, it's something we should actually take a little pride in, is that we, over the years, we have invested um, publicly and privately in a lot of medical schools, law schools. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh have major medical centers. There is no way every doctor trained in the state could stay in the state. We just don't have enough room for them. California, on the other hand, has, I think, fewer medical schools than we have in Pennsylvania. And we send a lot of doctors there. So some of it, some of the outflow is is just a fact that we have these great educational institutions, particularly in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which are attracting millennials. We've got to do something in, in the rural areas of the state, smaller cities to, to create the same kind of dynamic in them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, I mean, we talk about economic impact, um, economic impact of, you know, an aging population creates more of a burden on the state. But we should also say, like, this is a good state to be a retiree in, right? I mean, 
is it easier to be retired in the state than it is to be a, maybe a young working professional? Is there a divide there? I mean, I think I, I've seen some an- analysis of like best states to retire, and I think Pennsylvania ranks um, among the top in there. Um, part of it is we don't re- tax retirement income, right. um, making it a little more attractive for, for, for those with a lot of retirement income. Um, that I, I do think that has been been the trend in terms of the, the rankings uh, of re- attraction to, for retirees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I suppose I just like kind of a look at like who we're retracting, and um, we have an email here, um, and what is making people stay in the state. Uh, let me <laughs> pull up his email. One second. Um, all right. So we have an email in from. Uh, I don't see a name here. It says from me. Um, <laughs> so we just spoke about the state's revenue shortfall, and we see where cuts in state education funding is happening. You know, talks of cuts and consolidation of state colleges, which is something that we've talked about in our budget discussions. How can we say the state is incentivizing young people that this is a good state to start and raise a family? I think that's a fair question. In our, um, you know, the last round of budget um, hearings that we had, we hear, heard from the PASHI system, the state hydro- education system, and, you know, state funding for, you know, state colleges has been relatively flat for the last several years. Um, Mark, anything to say? It's actually declined. Well, sure. Uh, declined over the last uh, seven or eight years. We just did a report that showed that the PASHI systems are enormously effective in helping people from the bottom 40% of incomes rise into the top 60%, far more effective than any of the private colleges, um, the small colleges, or the big ones. Um, PASHI system is a real engine of economic mobility for people. It's an engine of economic growth. And the idea that we might be cutting it now is just crazy. Part of the reason people want to cut it, they say, well, there's been a decline in the number of students attending. We're going to be addressing that in future reports. But here's what we found out. One thing is there was there was a demographic blip. The number of 18-year-olds did decline for a period in Pennsylvania. It's starting to go up again. We shouldn't be cutting in response to something that happened in the past. We should be paying attention to what's expected in the future. And the second thing is part of the decline in, in students attending PASHI schools is that tuitions have skyrocketed, not just tuitions, but room and board have skyrocketed. Student debt has, has gone up. Uh, we need to be funding those schools much better so that we, we uh, they're more attractive to people so that uh, numbers grow up and we they can contribute to uh, the economic growth in the way education t- typically does. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. One, one thing just on that is, is I think you're looking at the, the PASHI schools that they have experienced enrollment declines, but it's not kind of uniform across the schools. Some have seen dramatic declines in enrollment and others have been been um, more consistent or even seen some growth. Um, and I think that is some of the talk now of what to do with the, the PASHI schools um, because um, some would actually like to be out of the system. Um, some think they need to consolidate because of the enrollment declines. Um, I think there really does need to be an, an overhaul uh, of that because uh, there is such a, a divide between those individual schools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... Um Interesting to mention that because, like, there are is talk that some of these schools could close if you know if the funding is not there. Um, but you know, how much does Apache school, I suppose, contribute? Like, do you is that, do you think those are an economic driver for the sure, state? Sure, absolutely. We we've in the past and, and in the future we'll put out more evidence that shows where you have a higher percentage of people with college degrees, the economy grows a lot faster. In addition to the direct benefit that you know college professors, students coming to a town generates economic activity. They generate that smaller group of, of, uh, or rather the growing group of young people that creates the kind of energy and the culture that attracts more young people. 
Mm-hmm. And then I do want to get into um, one of the things that I think is interesting about these uh, population, these demographic shifts that we've seen in the state is we've mentioned, you know, while uh, we do lose young people, we get more in cities, you know, in Pencil- in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh. And so I, mean, I guess what that does is it sequesters people a little bit more, right? Young people, I think, tend to be on average a little bit more liberal. We see a consolidation of, you know, liberal folks in the cities and otherwise elsewhere. Um, I mean, do you, do you see that as a trend in Pennsylvania? Has that gotten worse? Either one of you. That I suppose uh, not worse, but is, has it gotten more pronounced? You mean like the, pol- the divide? But- yeah, the political polarization between cities and... I, I think you can say that. I think, you know, going back to the question of, of gerrymandering, um, that, you know, a lot of, even though you say, well, Pennsylvania has a Democratic voter registration, um, most of those people are, I mean, the benefit in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and other cities um, is, is huge. And in fact, you see Democrats winning in some districts in Philadelphia with 90, 95 percent of the vote. Um, there is, a, I think, an increased concentration there. Um, and likewise with Republicans um, in, in rural areas that um, there's an analysis that basically some of these districts are um, 40, 50 points different in, in terms of elections. Um, but I think in terms of being able to, to dialogue with um, just folks who have a different point of view um, is is become more difficult, even online. Um, they think like, oh, online you can do um, much more communication, but um, we've seen, that, I think, social media, you can even you can segregate who you're talking to, and I think there is more of a bubble both on the left and on the right. Mm-hmm. Mark? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's unfortunate. Uh, and and I, I think it's particularly unfortunate in, in the rural areas of the state. I mean, look, schools in urban areas, uh, K-12 to education is suffering because we're not funding them enough. But the schools in rural areas in many parts of the state are suffering just as much. And um, as I said, rural legislators dominate in Pennsylvania, yet rural communities are suffering much greater than even urban areas from our lack of public investment. Um, I think that's, you know, problems, you know, uh, uh, we have an ideology in the state of that government stands in the way when, in fact, what we know from from lots of evidence is that when government invests in education and, and clean air and water and cities and communities uh, and infrastructure, that economies grow, communities thrive and, and people do better. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's a limit to that, but I think we are way below the co- levels of public investment we need in in this state. Uh, to make uh, rural and urban communities prosperous. Sure. And I do want to ask, so like when a student has to leave the state for college, does that not increase the likelihood that they would have to stay out, out of state? When they have to leave for college? Sure. Um, or if they do leave, you know, if they don't stay in the state, if we're not incentivizing students to stay in Pennsylvania for college, you know, do, I mean, don't you think, is it more likely that they won't come back? Um, I, I suppose that that is that there probably is a trend of going to out of state for college and, and staying there. Sure. Um, I think the trend that we've actually seen in Pennsylvania, though, is that people are coming here for college. That we have um, a lot of good universities, um, even especially private universities, uh, where people are coming in and uh, and then leaving the state after college. Um, that I think that has been more the case than uh, than, the, than the reverse. Mm-hmm. All right, and so now I want to kind of pull back because you know we've got. Um, about, gosh, was it like two, a month and a half until our budget is due? Uh, so June 30th is that deadline. And so we're seeing a lot of very quick negotiate not quick, um, nothing's quick, but we're seeing <laughs> negotiations beginning in the legislature about what exactly is going to be in this budget. So what are you two, um, you know, looking for, looking at, following as we get into these final days of negotiations or final months? Um, you know, Nathan, start with you. Sure. I mean, I think... What we were looking for is 
as as things are coming up quickly and there hasn't really been a whole lot of uh, of negotiations so far is sure. is to avoid the mistakes of the past mm-hmm. and and rushing to get something done um, by June 30th that um, doesn't look towards the future that is only trying to close this budget gap um, get a, a balanced budget even if it's a quote unquote balanced budget that isn't really balanced as last year's was um, done without looking at some of the implications on long term things like and that we've talked about um, the long term um, effects of, of aging population of attracting job creation and making Pennsylvania more competitive. Mm-hmm. And Mark, what are you looking at? Uh, I agree, and not to rush. In fact, I wrote a blog post last year that some things are worse than a late budget. Um, what we're looking for is them to grapple with the long-term problem. We have a proposal called a fair share tax, which I think would solve a lot of our problems in the state. We have an upside-down tax system. We tax people at the bottom at 12% of their income. We tax the 1% at 4.3% of their income. You can't generate revenues if you're not going to tax the people who have the most money and whose incomes are going up. So we've called for a, a tax that raises the tax on what we call income from wealth, capital gains, dividends, um, estates, royalties, to 6.5% and reduces the tax on wages and interest to 2.8%, back where it was in the Ridge years. That would bring in $2 billion in new revenue. It would reduce taxes for 60% of Pennsylvanians. Uh, another 15, 25% would see no change. Only the top 15% would pay more. And most of that tax would come from the, t- from the top 1% and the top 5%. That's the way to fix our long-term budget problem, raise new revenues, and reduce taxes on working people in the middle class at the same time. All right. Well, we are seeing, um, you know, (laughs) some proposals coming out in the legislature. We saw the GOP, um, House GOP, did have their own budget proposal that largely hinges on uh, spending cuts. Governor Tom Wolf makes a lot of cuts, um, some agency consolidations, but there are some new revenues in there. Um, You know, again, any final words on what we've seen so far? Any, uh, you know, predictions for what the big challenges are going to be when we get into these negotiations. I mean, there's been so much talk about, you know, let's see, gaming revenue. That's come up year after year after year. And there's also been liquor expansions. I mean, how do we, I mean, there are some real questions about whether or not we're going to be able to um, fill these holes without raising taxes. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of what the big fights are, um, I think there's still some intention to do something with gambling. Details of that are are what's going to be the touching point. Um, there's the issue of, of the tax increases. Governor Wolf proposed a, a billion dollars in, in new taxes, um, largely on businesses, but those are going to be passed on. Um, the House Republicans, even their budget, do want some new revenues, but want to get that from um, privatizing uh, liquor stores. Um, almost complete privatization has been part of their uh, their thing, which is something Commonwealth Vision supports and things we should get out of the booze business. Um, I think those are going to be some of the big, big negotiating um, things over the next month and a half. Yeah, you know, the House uh, passed a budget which is really problematic, cuts everywhere, uh, unexplained cuts of $200 million in medical assistance and long-term care, huge cuts in child care, uh, which helps people go to work and get an education. Uh, it's a very worrisome budget, and it's not funded with revenue. So um, it's very hard to see how that can be the basis for, for, a, for a solution. Um, you know, we, we say we, we need the corporate tax reform. We need a severance tax, only 7% of which would be paid by Pennsylvania consumers. Most of it would be paid by consumers elsewhere in the country. Uh, We need something like our fair share tax. Um, We need to raise revenues. And we need the governor's $2 million billion cuts in in government efficiencies, which we think are a great idea. Even the Commonwealth Foundation found some nice things to say about some of them. 
Um, we need to make the government more efficient, too, but we're not going to solve our budget problem just by cutting without really hurting lots of people. All right. Well, um, I guess we can see that there's no, there's very little consensus on what exactly to do uh, with this structure deficit, but we're going to leave it there for today. Again, I'm Katie Meyer. I want to thank Mark Steer, Director of the Pennsylvania Budget and Policy Center, for joining us. Mark, thank you. Uh, Nathan Benefield uh, with the Commonwealth Foundation, and you heard from Sheila Weinberg with Truth and Accounting earlier. Again, Smart Talk, I'm Katie Meyer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>